This is what it means to be called. It's to stand up here and prepare to give a sermon on a scripture text like that. (laughs) This is not what you choose to do. This is what you are called to do. Well, today we continue with this theme of possessions. That's our theme here for the month of November. And in particular, um, looking today at let us serve. Last week we focused on let us give. And I told you that I wouldn't be so subtle. And uh, because these scripture texts don't allow us to be very subtle. And, and so last week we talked about how God calls us in terms of our possessions to give, um, to give them to anyone, brothers and sisters in Christ who have need, those who have any need. And, and then we talked about how we forget that the verse before all of that really begins that section. That section is that the Father has chosen God has chosen to give you the kingdom. So have no fear, little flock. Even though the Father may ask you to do some really big things, have no fear. Then we talked about how that love of God flows into us. I mean, God just chooses to give us his love, his grace, just flows into us. And the, the way we were built was that we were to let that love flow out of us to our neighbors who are in need. But sometimes we get stuck, or I actually said that word constipated, <laughs> financially constipated. <laughs> and, and, and so that was last week's focus, let us give. And so this week, it's not going to be any less indirect, <laughs> let us serve. And as we take a look at this, remember I told you earlier, I wanted you to remember that line from that first hymn that we sang, a thousand years is like an evening to God, because what we have today in this parable is, and it doesn't happen very often, but there's an implied allegory that is connected to this parable. Today we're focusing on the call to serve God by serving our neighbor. Inside the church, that's a great way to serve. We always need people to help serve, communion, usher, AV, um, helping with the mission projects, helping with visitations, serving home communion to our homebound. We, we have lots of ways that you can serve within the church. But that was not God's intent, that you're just to serve in the church. God wants us to use our gifts in the church and outside of the church. Sometimes we have gotten a little confused because we think of the church as the building and not the people of God, the body of Christ. And so we are called to serve whether we are in church, in work, at home, in school, doesn't make any difference where we are at. We are called to serve and to use our gifts, our spiritual gifts. And today we have this very challenging parable about using our gifts. Jesus and his disciples 
are nearing Jerusalem for the final time. This is actually the last parable that, that Jesus will teach prior to going into Jerusalem. And so this concludes his public ministry outside of Jerusalem. And you can tell that there is something momentous about his entrance into Jerusalem this time. There is something that is unique and different. As a matter of fact, this time when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the kingdom of God will begin to be fulfilled. He has been talking about this with his disciples. And because of that, they have a different expectation of his entrance. Let me read verse 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. You see, the disciples and many of the followers of Jesus thought that going to Jerusalem would be the finale, the grand finale. That that would be the accomplishment, the fulfillment, and everything would be finished. And they would receive all of the gifts that God had promised them. So Jesus knows that that is not the case. And so he wants to correct this impression in his disciples. The kingdom, you see, is one of those yet but not yet moments. It is already present in Jesus, but it will not be completed until Jesus' second coming. So it is now, and it is not yet now. It's kind of like how we celebrate Christmas in the United States. Once Halloween is over, you get Christmas. You don't get Thanksgiving, you don't get fall harvest, you don't get anything, you get Christmas. That's the only thing you get. Even though we won't celebrate Christmas for nearly two months, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day then becomes the fulfillment of our Christmas. So we are celebrating Christmas. You can listen to Christmas music on your radio if you want. So we're celebrating Christmas even though it is not yet, but it is yet now. So that is kind of what it was like for his disciples. So Jesus tells this story to correct his disciples' assumption about the fulfillment of the kingdom. And as he tells this story, there are three groups or characters in this story. The first person is the nobleman, and he is the one that owns all of these possessions and we call them minas and gets translated gifts. So he's the one that owns all these gifts, and he's going away to receive his, his inheritance, in a sense, his He's going to be crowned as the king of the kingdom. And so the, the nobleman is the first person in the, in the story. 
The second group of people that is mentioned in the story are the citizens. It gets translated in this translation as the people. Uh, but literally, it was citizens. And then the reason I want to make that distinction is because um, there's a distinction between the citizens and the third group of people in this story, which is the servants or the slaves. So you have the noblemen, you have the citizens, and then you have the slaves in that order. And when Jesus is telling this story, he wants us to understand that there is a distinction between the people, the citizens, and the slaves. So let's take a look at this story in a little more depth. Now, the nobleman is a man of good character. And it says that the nobleman is going away to a distant country. And when you take a look at the Greek text, what's being said there actually is that the nobleman is going to be taken up to a different country. And it's the same reference that you see in Acts 1 and earlier in Luke 9 about Jesus' ascension into heaven. So the first part of this story tells us that what Jesus is implying to his disciples is that the fulfillment will not take place immediately. Remember, a thousand years is like an evening to God. The nobleman turns king, and as he, is, as he becomes the king, what's interesting is that he is not, um, he's not really interested in financial gain. The king is not interested, even though it looks like it is in this story, we're going to take a closer look and see that he's really not interested in financial gain. What he is interested in is are his people, his servants in particular, the servants that he gives these gifts to, are they engaging in business? It's not a, whether they're succeeding at business. It's not how much profit that they're making in business. His point is, are they engaging in business? His hope is that the disciples and the followers of Jesus will be faithful to their calling. Let me say that again. The hope is that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, will be faithful to their calling. There's a professor, Dr. Dwight Shelley, uh, I think that's closest I can get to it, the German name, it begins with a Z, followed by a C-H, Shelley. Um, he teaches at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, he had written this article about two months ago. It's gotten a lot of press. It, uh, <laughs> it's getting a lot of press because the title of his article is, Will the ELCA Be in Existence in 2050? Now, what's interesting about this is um, not the statistics so much, but the questions. And when you take a look at the questions, you know, 
you could actually substitute any denomination in that equation because it's not just the Lutherans. It is every single denomination. Well, denominational congregations exist in 30 years. You know, we, we have those kinds of questions on occasion, but, but we don't really think about them in terms of the broader spectrum because we're focused on how are things going here. And so the, the question that he is asking is, are we as a denomination, are we as congregations, are we doing the things that is bringing life and good news to the people of this region, of this nation? Are we doing the things, the outcomes in a sense, that show us whether we're doing the things that bring good news, that bring life, that bring hope to people. And that how it all gets organized in the future may look very different. Do we fear that? We shouldn't. Because going back to last week's scripture from Luke 12, Jesus told us, have no fear, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. You, the people of God, you, the body of Christ, you have the kingdom. It's within you as a body. Weekly attendance in the ELCA currently is at 900,000. So of all the churches around the country, there are on average each Sunday are 900,000 worshipers in Lutheran congregations. By 2041, 22 years from now, it's anticipated that if the projections continue like they have, have continued to fall over the last several years, that we'll move from 900,000 people in worship in a little over 20 years to 16,500 people in worship. So the question isn't Will we be around? Will we be successful? The question is, will we be faithful with what God has given us? Will we teach our children and our grandchildren to be faithful with which God has given them? The nobleman is a person uh, that we don't understand really completely. He goes away to a distant country. We can't comprehend what's in his mind. What we do know is what the nobleman has told us, that we have been given gifts and that we've been called to use those gifts even though it may not always be comfortable, even though it may not always make sense, we have been called to use these gifts which God has given us. The second group of people that 
Jesus mentions in this story is the citizens. After the noblemen, you get the citizens, the people. And they, because they were citizens, they were entitled with certain rights and possessions. They were the upper class of society, of the Roman Empire. They had reputations that they wanted to protect. Yet, they declared their independence from the king. Let's take a look at verse 14 in the story. But his people, actually, but the citizens, is how we want to translate that, hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. So the citizens are those who have rejected the king and want the kingdom to be in existence for themselves. As they declare their independence from this king, they are also opposed to the gospel. And it's more probable that the good news then that Jesus Christ brings will be received by tax collectors and sinners rather than the citizens. Interestingly enough, this parable is told to us right after the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector who repents and follows Jesus. The citizens who reject the king's rule are met with punishment, and that's in verse 27. And that would be an allusion then to the final judgment, the final day when Christ reappears and comes again. So that's the, the noblemen and the citizens. And the third group of characters in this story are the servants or, or slaves, doulos, actually slaves. Although slavery was a little bit different in the Roman Empire than it is for us in our history. Um, if you were a slave, you were either taken as the spoils of war, as the Romans conquered new countries, or you, you declared yourself a bonded servant. You were in debt, and you would become a servant to erase your debt. It was a self-choice to become a slave, um, or you would have been brought in as a slave from a foreign country. So, the slaves. Nearly two-thirds of the Roman Empire was slaves during the time of Jesus. And what's interesting is that in this story, the nobleman does not give the citizens anything. Who does he give it to? He gives it to the slaves, the servants. He calls forth servants, ten of them, and he gives each of them a certain amount of gift. It gets translated as gift um, in some translations, which is the most um, accurate translation, um, because the word that is used is mina, the Greek word. And what a mina would be, one mina equals about 100 drachma, and the drachma was... Um, was a monetary um, gift that, or a monetary amount 
that was used in the, in the society of that time. And um, 100 drachma would be equivalent roughly to about 100 days' wages. So that would be, you know, your work for that one quarter of the year. So what's interesting with Luke's retelling of the story, because Matthew also shares this story, uh, Luke says that Jesus said, Mina, Luke says, or uh, Matthew says um, that, that he used a different word um, which um, gets translated as um, uh, as a hundred, I'm sorry, as 60 times the amount of amina. So when you are looking at um, 100 days of wages in Luke, you would be looking at um, 6,000 days of wages in Matthew's story. So it's a pretty big leap from Luke's number to Matthew's, or a great reduction, depending on how you look at it. So the point that Luke is making here, I think, is that even though Jesus is telling the story about the nobleman giving the servants gifts, the gifts are not extravagant gifts. And that could be bad news for some, for some of us, that's good news because, you know, I'm not comfortable with, with really great news or great gifts, I'm sorry. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do with them. Uh, give me small gifts because then I know what to do with them. And, and, and so what Luke is trying to impress upon us is that the servants were... Um, using what they had been given. Even though it wasn't much, they were using what they had been given. They were not expected to change the world. <laughs> this is not a, a big influencer movement. They're not expected to, to impress the world, to change the culture. As a matter of fact, they were only called to do one thing, and that would be to be faithful to God with the gifts that God had given them. The disciples are not left destitute, yet they don't have these exceptional gifts. When you take a look at Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, um, in the first chapter, he makes reference to these disciples and early followers, this early church, and their gifts. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, this is 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 26. Um, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from our sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. So if, if you think that, well, I didn't know that I had spiritual gifts, and I thought you had to be really spectacular to get spiritual gifts, and then I thought that you had to be really, you know, almost perfect in your use of the spiritual gifts. If that's your thinking, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is telling us is that you have spiritual gifts, and they may not be great and profound. All the better. Because then God can use those gifts. They no longer become your gifts in that sense. They become God's gifts, and God uses them and multiplies them. And that's what happens in the story of the servants. The first servant is given ten minas, and when the king comes back, he has ten more. The second servant is given five minas, and when the king comes back, he has raised five more mina, more gifts. And then there's the third servant who was giving one mina. And he hid his. He buried it. He didn't do anything with it. The first two servants are rewarded for engaging in the world with their gifts. Their, their reward is more work and more responsibility. I think sometimes we have this this idea that if we're successful in God's eyes, we will receive this great inheritance and we'll, we'll move up from a little um, condo to a palace in heaven. Um, and that's, that's not what Jesus is promising here. What Jesus is promising is that if you are faithful in using your spiritual gifts, you will get more responsibility because the gifts are being multiplied. I think of, uh, some of you know that I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan. And I, I do want to tell you that I, I am so impressed with P.J. Fleck and the Minnesota Gophers. I mean, that coach is an amazing coach. If you've heard and read anything about this guy, the way he's, he's a little nutty. That's what they say about him. He's a little nutty. And I think that that nuttiness is part of his attraction because he has these strange analogies. He, he has a baseball bat that he had in his office for the first two years of being the head football coach at the University of Minnesota. And the, he would always show it to the players but never explain it until the beginning of this year he explained that the bat was there for a purpose. Because now that they were winning games, they were going to put a donut, not a Krispy Kreme, uh, a donut from batting practice. But before they put it on there, they'd put all the things that they had done well in that game and all the things that they had not done well. And so every success, they got to put a new donut on the baseball bat. 
And then he would swing it around, and he let them swing it around. And he says, you see, the more success you have, the more burden there is. That's what Jesus is trying to convey to us, is that he has given us spiritual gifts, and he wants us to use those gifts. Not with the sense that the more we use the gifts, the less we have to do, but the more we use the gifts, the more we will be blessed and given even more opportunity to serve more people. Jesus called Peter from a fairly successful fishing business and said, you've been fishing for fish. Now I want you to start fishing for people. The third servant hid his gifts. Then he goes and he begins to impugn. He calls into question the character of the king himself. He calls into character the question of the king. The king. The king, even though his character has been impugned by this servant, this follower, the king does not defend himself. He doesn't try to say, this is my thing, I get to do what I want. He doesn't defend himself. Nor does he punish the third servant. He doesn't punish him. The third servant, the only consequence that he experiences is, is that he is relieved. He's relieved from his gift. Jesus has invested in each one of us. Jesus has invested in you. And the miracle is not the servant. The miracle is not the spiritual gifts of the servants. The miracle is how God uses those gifts in you to bring about the kingdom of God. The more we use the gifts, the more faithful we are in exercising those gifts. The more faithful we are in exercising those gifts, the more extraordinary effect that those gifts have. So the question then is whether you are already using your gifts or not, will you serve the king? Will you serve the king and his kingdom with the use of your gifts? Amen.